0: The title of today's sermon is Truth or Fiction, Biblical Answers to Skeptics and the Gullible. Um, Truthorfiction.com is one of several sites that I uh, go to to check out stories that circulate on the web. And I had to originally do that because uh, relatives and friends would forward me emails that talked about some kind of crisis event where we had to take immediate action. We had to call a senator, or we had to write a letter to the FCC or some other agency. And I have to admit, uh, a couple of times early on, uh, I got egg on my face because I forwarded these, and they were just urban legends. (laughs) And so I started checking everything out uh, from some of these different uh, websites, and I tried to encourage those who forwarded emails to me to do the same. They've been very useful, helpful uh, websites. And I think most of you... I recognize you can't uh, believe everything that Aunt Matilda forwards in the email to you, right? Uh, who was it, P.T. Barnum, who said there's a sucker in every crowd? Uh, well, based on the silly emails that have been sent to me, I think there's more than a sucker in every crowd. It seems like there's lots of suckers who keep getting taken in uh, regularly. They don't seem to, uh, they don't seem to learn and the line that they sometimes give to me is this, but the email says it was well documented. They even gave a phone number that you could call. And I said, well, did you check out the documentation? Did you uh, call the number that was on there? No. And I said, well, these scam artists are counting on the fact that most people are not going to uh, bother to check those things out. And amazingly, the same is true in the area of the miraculous. Um, if we wanted to start our own truth or fiction for miracles.com, I think we could come up with a long, long list of fake uh, miracles that people have bought into that aren't miracles at all. They're just been pawned off on the public. And we could start our own truth or fiction uh, dot com of urban legends, you know, uh, with regard to miracles. Actually, B. B Warfield wrote a book that uh, came up with quite a long number of urban legends related to miracles. I don't agree with the thesis of his book, which uh, bunks all miracles. But he has a great list there. And there has been other writers who have come up with uh, uh, further lists after that time. You can think of W.V. Grant, uh, who was noted for growing people's legs longer. And he finally got caught. They figured out that it looked like it was growing longer, but he would just pull the shoe down, you know, and uh, right camera angle, it looked like things were growing. Or you can think of uh, Marjo, who was a boy preacher uh, back in the 1950s and would have these crusades with all kinds of amazing miracles. Well, when he grew up, he said he was kind of forced to do this and that it was all fakery. It had all been contrived and he showed exactly how they did it. Or you can think of Peter Popov, who um, was supposedly receiving words of knowledge from God only later on uh, through recordings of uh, broadcast between his wife and his earset, they found out these were words of knowledge from his wife uh, that he was listening to and then uh, giving out. And there are so many scams that are out there that what some people have done is they've just become skeptical of everything and they treat every miracle as if it is a hoax. And uh, they've gone to the opposite extreme. In his book, uh, Miracles in the Modern Mind. Norman Geisler seeks to argue against both naturalism on the one hand and naivete on the other. And I don't agree with everything that he has to say, but I think this paragraph I'm going to read to you is an interesting a summary of the problem that we face nowadays. He says, the biblical record is replete with miraculous stories. And he lists a long list of miracles in the Bible that I won't um, go over. He then says, this is the world of the Bible. It is a world of unusual and miraculous events and a world almost totally foreign to the modern mind. The modern scientific world, by contrast, is a natural one. It's a world in which solid metal objects heavier than water sink, as do people who step into water. It is a world in which water flows to its own level but does not form vertical walls. It is a world where the dead remain in the grave and where winemakers cannot fill their wine barrels from the water faucet. They must wait for slow natural processes to produce wine from grapes. Indeed, the biblical world and the modern world are worlds apart. The one seems mythical and the other real. The one seems superstitious and the other scientific. And some evangelicals who react against crazies like uh, Benny Hinn are so immersed in the naturalistic worldview of modern science, that their arguments against modern miracles many times are exactly the same arguments that liberals use against biblical miracles. Now, that's a scary position to be in. And my admonition to you this morning is that uh, we do not buy into that false dichotomy. We must not be driven with a, a scientific naturalism in any area of life, and on the other side, we shouldn't believe every claim that Aunt Matilda forwards to us in the email, okay? And I think the Scripture gives the balance between the two in almost every passage that deals with the miraculous. Let's ask this text a number of questions that I think are being asked today. And the first question is this, are miracles staged? Another way of saying this is, are miracles fake? And I think we'd have to admit that a lot of so-called miracles today are indeed staged. Uh, Very carefully controlled environment. For example, we have documentation on one very well-known crusader uh, who uh, has every aspect of their uh, crusade choreographed down to the second, the The mood, the tone, the music, the lighting, everything is choreographed to try to produce a psychological state uh, in people. Uh, Those who come to the event who are not psychologically vulnerable, what they call, uh, they are healing a healing risk, I think is what they call it, they don't get access to this healer, you know, they can't even get up onto the stage. And I think if we compare this passage to what happens in some of the more far out crusades today. You'll see many differences. These can actually be tests. You can form your own truthorfiction.com using these tests, and no one test by itself is sufficient to to deal with all of the the issues. But if you take them all together, I think it will give you a body of evidence one way or the other. The first test is to examine whether the claimed miracle takes place in a carefully um, controlled environment, sort of like what magicians uh, set up. In this passage, we see that that was definitely not the case with Peter. He went to them. He went onto their turf, into their homes. And uh, the people that he was dealing with were not in a kind of controlled environment that many times happens in stadiums today. Now, this, of course, does not rule out people being healed in stadiums. Um, Even some of Benny Hinn's worst critics admit that genuine healings occasionally do take place. Uh, Marjo even though he admitted that everything that they had crafted ahead of time was a fake miracle, he said there were some healings that actually took place, even in a bizarre setting like that. When you've got 20,000 people praying for somebody's healing, you know, God once in a while maybe does answer, even in a a weird setting uh, like uh, he was in. And so this test by itself is not an adequate test. It's still possible to have illusion in that kind of a setting, but it is much more difficult. It's almost impossible in those kinds of settings to have the kind of mass hysteria that produces these psychological states uh, in people. In these two healings, none of the onlookers were strangers to each other. In stadiums, almost everybody's a stranger to each other. And people might say, well, what about the mass crusades that Christ had? Didn't he do healings there? But if you examine the Gospels, you will see that all of the healings Jesus did were one-on-one. He didn't, uh, he, he didn't do them in the typical way that uh, goes on, uh, that goes on today. <clears throat> the second difference that I notice is that Peter healed actual individuals. Luke names them. Everyone knows that Peter is dealing with a paralytic in verse 34. Everybody knows that he's dealing with a dead person in verse 40. They know these people. It's much harder to hide a failure in that kind of a setting than it is when a, a person says, God has just healed XYZ in this congregation, but uh, nobody knows who that, that particular person may be. Let me give you just a, a little section from a transcript of one healer who describes healings taking place anonymously. And he does this to try to stir up people's faith, he says. These are from words of knowledge according to him. A muscle condition has been healed. I give you the praise. Just now lift your hands and call upon his precious name. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. Sinuses have been healed. I give you praise. A neck injury has been healed. I give you the praise. In the audience, God is touching people right now, right here. The Lord is touching many of you in this audience, right here in this studio. I give you praise, Jesus. In your homes, many of you are being healed. Someone's shoulders have just been released from pain. Someone with a shoulder problem has just been healed. I give you praise. Now, how in the world are you going to verify that? You know? Peter dealt with individuals. Now, none of these tests are conclusive, <clears throat> but I think that when you take them all together, they do show They do point in the direction of truth or fiction, and there are a lot of true healings today that I think pass all of these tests. Notice thirdly that the healing was immediate, verse 34, when Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. The same was true of Dorcas in verses 40 through 41. Now contrast that with the statements that are sometimes made by healers who claim that a healing has taken place. They're confronted about it because people say no healing had taken place, and their response frequently is, oh yes, a healing has taken place, but it's in seed form. What you need to do is bring this seed to maturity, and sometimes this is how they will coax thank offerings out of people because that is an expression of faith that will bring this to maturity. But they claim, no, it doesn't look like a miracle has happened, but yes, a miracle has indeed uh, happened there. Don't doubt the healing has happened. Fourth, notice that the people were actually healed, not that they just said that they were healed. Uh, what frequently happens in Word of Faith uh, movement healing services is that people are coached to have a positive confession of faith. I am healed. I can see. And... Um, They don't dare say otherwise because this would be a negative confession which kills faith and God doesn't answer negative confessions. He only answers positive confessions of faith. And so what you see on the TV is a person who says, I've been healed, but what the TV does not see is two weeks later the crushed spirits of this person who's just the same as ever. On July 27, 2003, the Los Angeles Times reported one of thousands of similar examples that could be given. It said, sitting cross-legged in front of a big screen TV, the 11-year-old squints through Coke bottle glasses at a Miracle Crusade video made more than two years ago in which he starred as a boy who miraculously recovered from blindness. I liked it at first because I thought I was being healed, says Williams in the living room of his aunt and uncle's home. On the screen, Hinn bends down to William, his hands on the child's face. Look at these tears, says Hinn, peering into the child's eyes. William, baby, can you see me? Before more than 15,000 people in the Las Vegas arena, William nods. In a small voice, the boy says, as soon as God healed me, I could see better. Hinn, an arm wrapped around William, tells the audience that God has told him to pay the child's medical expenses and education. People weep. Today, William is still legally blind and says his sight never improved and that his on-stage comments were wishful thinking. Incidentally, the family has yet to receive any of the promised money for medical or educational expenses. Now, the Bible does talk about positive confessions of faith, but it never authorizes this kind of thing. This is an abuse of the confessions of faith. It never authorizes us to say things that are not true, Okay. Another test that you can find in both the Old and the New Testaments is that the person who prays for healing does not receive money for the healing. You can think of Elisha in the Old Testament who healed Naaman. And Naaman wants to give him all kinds of money because he is so grateful and Elisha steadfastly refuses any money. Well, Gehazi, his servant, thinks, boy, I've got a good plan. He goes running after Naaman. He says, you know, my master changed his mind. We will take a little bit, not too much. And so he goes and he hides that, and Gehazi gets struck with leprosy because this was such an offense to God, and yet this is the way that many crusades today make most of their money. You know, they get it through people, coaxing people into giving thank offerings to increase their faith, planting seeds of faith, selling blessed handkerchiefs or blessed aprons. This is a merchandising of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a mockery of God's grace. Now, I believe in miracles, but I don't forward every story of healing because I know a lot of them do not line up with the Bible. Sixth, a record is given that would enable people to investigate the claims of the healing. Isn't that what Acts is? It's a written record with actual names and places that anybody can go out and investigate the names at the time that it was uh, written. Nowadays, when people ask for names and phone numbers or addresses where they can contact these people who have just been healed, no names, no phone numbers, no addresses are forthcoming, even for people who are discreet or newspaper reporters. And with all of the fakery that's out there, you can understand why they would not be giving these names to other people. Now, I give these tests not so that you can dismiss all claims to miracles, but so that you would be cautious. There is a lot of chicanery that's been going on out there. Seventh, a physician corroborated the story. His name is Luke. He is called elsewhere in the Scripture the beloved physician Luke. And uh, commentators and uh, other authors who have looked through the Gospel of Luke and they've looked through the book of Acts that Luke wrote have said this is written in a different style than the others. Very historical approach. But what they've been intrigued by is the, the, the medical terms and the knowledge of medical conditions that this person shows. Here is a person that's going to be very hard to pull the wool over his eyes. He's a physician. And there are many miraculous healings that have been corroborated today by doctors, by hospital records, by morgue uh, records, etc. I have a physician here in town. Uh, who is a friend of mine, and he has had a number of r- remarkable miracles that have come through his office and come through their hospital, and the records to demonstrate this person's condition was incurable. I know a large many that has uh, thousands of some of the hardest case scenarios with people being healed. Not everybody gets healed, God is sovereign. But people being healed there of incredibly problematic conditions. And yet this ministry constantly tells people don't get off your medications unless the doctor tells you that you are healed. Go to the doctor. Just like Jesus sent the lepers to the priest, you know, to have them verify, yes, you have been cleaned of your condition. And they want their ministry to be corroborated. But not all healers do. And again, because of the fakery, you can understand why they would not want to. They use excuses like this. Testing this miracle would be an insult to God. It's a lack of faith. And yet, what does the Bible say? Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And if we can test the spirits without offending God, why can't we test a miracle? Would it not be a great glory to God for a hospital to say, this guy is miraculously healed? I think it would be great glory And yet many people are reluctant to do that. And to me, that's a negative stroke on those claims to miracles. Eight, these healings were immediately put to the test. What does verse 34 say? Peter says, Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. He was tested. He was tested. And this testing of miracles was longer term because verse 35 uh, says, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him. They saw him. Is healing verifiable? Is it testable? Augustine, the 4th century hero of Calvinist, witnessed many remarkable miracles, including uh, a blind man being healed completely, a paralytic being restored, not just of his paralysis, but a hernia that he had, and six resurrections. Now, initially, Augustine was an incredible skeptic, but he researched, he researched, and he came to the conclusion that uh, this was indeed uh, going on. Even in his own ministry, it was happening, but he always insisted before the church is told of any miracle, you need to research it. You need to document it. It needs to be verified, and only then may the church be told about these miracles the ministry that I told you about earlier has uh, many faults, but one of their faults is not that uh, healings take place. They invite secular media to check things out. And Luke has absolutely no fears about people checking out the things that he has said. In, in um, uh, chapters 4 and 5, even the opponents of Christianity cannot deny that a miracle has happened. They can't deny it. They're right in front of them. Ninth. The people who knew the sick person were the ones who ended up believing. Now, I find that interesting because many times today, in a lot of so-called healing crusades, the people who know the ones who have been quote-unquote healed are the ones many times who are the sharpest critics who have become the biggest cynics about healing ministry. And it's the people who don't have the foggiest notion who's just climbed up onto the, the stage who have become the big Believers, you know, in this ministry, look what's happened. Look, what ha- look, look at what has happened to these people. When you talk to the relatives and the friends of a person who has been healed and they believe he has been healed and their lives have been transformed, then there is an indication, maybe something has happened here. Let me just give you an example of how you can apply this test. In 1998, there was a, um, a Buddhist monk who died and he was supposed to be cremated a few days later. By the time that the claim to his resurrection happened, they said his body was already stinking, beginning to decompose. But the claim was he rose from the dead. And he claimed that he had been in hell and that uh, Buddha and others uh, of the monks were already burning in hell and that Jesus was the only answer. They needed to believe in Jesus. Now, that would be a story that I would be pretty skeptical of. But a ministry that works in Myanmar went and investigated, and they found there was 300 monks who had become Christians as a result of this man's testimony. He had his testimony on tape, and they'd been distributing it all throughout Myanmar, and the uh, Myanmar Buddhist authorities were very, very um, uh, upset about this. And so they arrested the man. Now, that automatically makes a red flag in my mind. They've arrested him. And we've not seen him since. So the evidence is gone. And uh, the tapes are uh, considered to be a serious crime to listen to. But here would be a test. If there were people who knew him the best, who were absolutely convinced that this man was raised from the dead, it would be at least one test that would indicate maybe something has gone here, gone on here. That was a miracle. Now, there are other tests that could and should be applied to a story like this before you go ahead and believe it. But when people who know the individual very well themselves are themselves convinced, it's much better than to have a third hand report about third hand people believing. Tenth, Peter sticks around long enough to have to live with the results. Verse 43. Says So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. If the two healings were a fakery because of how close these towns were, he probably would have been run out of town. Many modern healers cannot be held accountable for their claims to healing because they're just moving constantly from place to place. Now, if you just think of it by analogy of a traveling salesperson, if a salesperson routinely cheats people, does not give what he promised, does not even deliver, just takes the money and runs, he's not going to stick around town very long, is he? He's going to have to constantly be moving from place to place. Now, that does not mean that uh, ministries that are moving from place to place don't have genuine healings. This is a negative proof, but what it does indicate is when you have a ministry that has been in a town and people know them and they're here long term, and they've built a reputation, that's definitely a, a, a far better indication of credibility. It raises the level of credibility. 11th, Peter directed attention to Christ and not to himself. Verse 34 Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Be skeptical when healers are constantly drawing attention to themselves and how wonderful they are. When a ministry revolves almost entirely around a person's fame and fortune, especially the fortune, uh, it's not a good sign. Paul says it's not good when people say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Our ministries, if they are healthy, should be constantly pointing attention to Christ. We see the same thing in verse 40. These widows have been showing the tunics Dorcas had made, drawing attention to what a good person Dorcas was. It's almost as if they're thinking Dorcas is worthy of a healing, of some miracle uh, going on here. And by the way, these widows appear to be unbelievers because if you look at verse 41, it talks about when he had called the saints and widows. The widows weren't part of the saints. The saints and widows. So here are widows who are not acting uh, out of faith, are not acting in a Christian uh, manner on this, and Peter doesn't want anything to do with this. Okay? Dorcas, if she were alive, would have been embarrassed by what they are doing. And he just said, get out of here. He puts them all out of the room and uh, indicates that it has nothing to do with our goodness. It has everything to do with the goodness of the Lord. The 12th test is that this was a result of faith in the Lord, not faith in Peter. In verse 35, they turned to the Lord, not to Peter. In verse 42, it says they believed in the Lord, not in Peter. And yet, how many times do people put faith in the healer rather than faith in God? The last test is the pride test. Verse 43 says, "...so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner." Now, a tanner was a person who spent every day working with the skins of dead animals, which in Jewish parlance meant that he was unclean. He was perpetually unclean. Unless he quit, well, maybe on the Sabbath, he wouldn't be unclean. But he was unclean all of the other days. And I've given a scripture there, Leviticus 11:35 to 40, that shows why uh, he would be unclean. So this is really an amazing thing for Peter to do, to be associating with and living in the home of a person who is not only considered very, very low uh, on the Jewish totem pole, but is considered to be unclean. I think it's a sedgeway that Luke is using to show, okay, he's already been prepared by the Lord to deal without prejudice with a tanner. Next chapter, he's going to be associating with Gentiles as well. And so it's kind of a sedgeway that that, um, Luke uses. But to me, this shows the humility of Peter. After those two miracles, he could have picked any home that he wanted to live in. People would have been honored to have Peter live with them. Maybe kiss their babies and uh, (laughs) work with the the sick that were in their home. And yet he chose not to do so. I think Peter was making a statement, uh, staying in this home for such a long time. And the statement was the need for each of us to have humility. This is in such stark contrast to the empire building the ego lifting that goes on in many self-proclaimed healing ministries. Some of these ministries just reek with pride, absolutely reek. The larger-than-life posters, the puff pieces, the $3,000 suits, and so many other things point to a lack of humility or modesty. And so those are 13 tests by which you can evaluate claims to healing. Now, if you don't like an odd number, you can throw another one in there that This was not the only ministry that Peter engaged in. He was engaged in all kinds of things. You do not see, like you do today, people who just specialize. This is a healing ministry. You don't see that in the New Testament. And if you don't like uh, even numbers, then you can have a a 15th uh, principle in there. He didn't yell at God, and he didn't command God to do things. It just flabbergasts me to hear pastors, even here in Omaha, who yell and shout at God and command Him to do things. They've got a justification. There there is one mistranslation in the King James Version that seems as if it says it's commanding God. But this is blasphemy, absolute blasphemy. So there's 15, if you want uh, 15 tests that you can use. With that as a background, let's very quickly skim through the passage verse by verse, and let's look at the other questions of skeptics from today. Second major question is can a paralytic be healed? The way this is sometimes worded is this way. I've seen people healed of headaches. I've seen people healed of backaches because those can be psychologically explained away, but I've never seen a person grow a leg back. I've never seen a paralytic healed. I've never seen a dead person raised from the dead. And so that's the the way that they phrase it. And many times these people don't believe in miracles at all. Obviously, we evangelicals don't have that choice, uh, Bible talks about miracles. We see the tool of healing in verse 32. It was Peter. He was given the gift of healing, but Peter sees himself as only a tool. God is the ultimate healer. Then in verse 33, we see the problem. There he found a certain man named named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And so, man, there's a great test of whether a real miracle has happened. You know, you don't often see, I don't think you ever see paralytics getting off of their bed instantly. That's not something that the placebo effect has had very much success with, right? Is getting paralytics healed. And so this is really an amazing problem that he's confronted with. The solution is given in verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. This cannot be explained away in terms of placebo effect or any other effect that you might want to Think of, And so we evangelicals, we do not question the presence of miracles in the Bible. What we have done many times is we have questioned the presence of miracles since 70 A.D. Well, I've read a lot in the church fathers, and I can assure you there has not been a single age since the time of the apostles when there have not been miracles reported commonly by the church fathers. Or if you want a careful historian who has tried to work very hard to separate fact from fiction, Uh, you can read Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical History, written in A.D. 731. Still in print. You can purchase it from the bookstore. Can God heal paralytics? Well, obviously, yes. He did it in the Bible. Can God heal paralytics today? Well, the church fathers definitely thought so. I think Norman Geisler worded it quite well when he said, if there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. The only way to show that miracles are impossible is to disprove the existence of God. Now, some people have tried to do it by saying miracles are exclusively tied to the apostles. And yet, the book of Acts, unashamedly, connects miracles with non-apostles, like Ananias in verse 18. Others have tried to connect miracles just to the first century. And yet, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Jesus who healed this uh, paralytic here is the Jesus who continues to be with us. Unless the Scripture clearly says that something has stopped, we should assume it continues on the way the Bible describes it. And there are a number of testimonies to paralytics being healed in history. I think I mentioned that Augustine Uh, names one who was healed both of his paralysis and a hernia that he had at the same time, at baptism of all times. That was an interesting uh, miracle. One objection that is often offered is this. Okay, if healings are around, how come we don't have these healers going through the hospital wards and emptying the hospitals? And I would say for the same reason that Jesus didn't heal everybody that was around. In Acts chapter 3, there was a lame person who every day of his life had been laid at that temple to beg for alms And Jesus could not have gone into that temple without noticing this beggar, and yet he was not healed. God wanted him healed in Acts chapter 3. Peter didn't heal everybody. Paul didn't heal everybody. He couldn't even heal his close friends. Uh, He didn't even uh, get healing for something that he had in his own life. God is totally sovereign as to when and where he will heal. And for healers to command God to heal is blasphemy. We can no more empty hospitals then we can ensure that everybody we preach to is going to be saved. We're going to look at verses 36 through 37 under point 5, but it is clear that Dorcas was a godly lady, and yet she gets sick in verse 7 and then died. Sickness and death are a part of God's plan, and you cannot stay alive one second longer than God has determined. One reason why hospital wards are not being emptied is that it's not God's will for everybody in sight to be healed. Now, this is a legitimate question to ask those people who believe that it is everybody's right to be healed of all diseases. And you're lacking faith that there are uh, no uh, diseases that are healed. You could ask them, well, why don't you go into the hospital and heal everyone? I think it's legitimate for them, but not in terms of miracles in general. Now, verse 35 brings up a totally different question that many people have been skeptical about. And the question is, can a genuine people movement happen? A people movement is a phenomenon that's been happening all over the world where an entire tribe comes to Christ, every man, woman, and child. And there have been a lot of evangelicals who have expressed skepticism. They said, Man, there is no way that everybody in that tribe could really be a Christian. Surely some of them have just been going along with the crowd. They're just fake believers. And some of these evangelicals have taken the time to go and travel to that tribe and interview hundreds and thousands of people, and they've reluctantly come back and they said, I was a skeptic, but these people appear to be genuinely converted. Now, for a Calvinist, that should not be a problem. It is no more difficult for God to convert an entire tribe than it is for Him to convert one individual. Both of them are equal miracles, aren't they, in a sense, because the man's heart is so depraved. There's a blindness uh, that is upon it. Did God not convert exactly, or promise to convert exactly, depending on your eschatology, 144,000 in the book of Revelation, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. How come such an exact number? It's just speaks about the sovereignty of God in election. And this verse is quite clear. It says, So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, some commentaries say we shouldn't push the word all so much because it could be hyperbole. It could be that it means all without distinction, not all without exception. And it's true, the Scripture does use the term all in that way elsewhere. The question is, does Luke... Use the term all in that way. Luke writes quite differently from the other Gospels. He's writing as a historian and has a a methodology. And if you look at verse 42, if it was hyperbole, then why does he not use it in verse 42? Verse 42 uses the word many, and many believed on the Lord. In the next chapter, he uses the word some, which indicates less than many. In other places, he gives exact numbers of how many people have been converted. Uh, Luke is known to be a very careful historian, and he writes as a a historian. So when there's this contrast in verse 25, all who dwelt versus many became believers in verse uh, 42. To me, it indicates a genuine people movement has happened here. This was not unprecedented. The entire city of Nineveh repented and became believers. And according to Jesus, it was a genuine conversion. And since that time, there have been a number of people movements down through history and even in our present day. And I know some of these people movements around the world that have been happening. It should not be troubling for us in the least. Fifth question, can God allow an indispensable disciple to die? The simple answer is no one is indispensable. And even a godly person can die. Verse 36 does not deny that this woman was an incredible asset, and an incredibly godly woman. Uh, verse 36 uh, says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. God doesn't answer the problem of evil by saying that bad things can't happen to good people. Instead, what He does is He says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and for His glory. And so if it's for our better good and for God's better glory for us to be sick and for us to die and go to heaven, we shouldn't apologize for that death. God is glorified. We should not go overboard on the issue of healing and expect that it is God's will for everyone to be healed. And I know people uh, who believe that you can expect just as much healing as you can for forgiveness of sin, that it is God's will for everyone to be healed. That is just wrong. But verse 37 says, Without any embarrassment, but it happened in those days she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Sickness happens by God's will. The next question is, can a dead person be raised to life? Well, there were skeptics back then who doubted it. Acts 26, verse 8, has Paul asking Herod Agrippa, Why should it be thought an incredible thing by you that God raises the dead? The word incredible means not believable. Why should it be thought not believable? Paul thought it was believable, Uh, nor, uh, nor did the disciples think it's unbelievable. Verse 38 says, And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Why the urgency if they didn't think something could be done? The next verse shows Peter thought that it could happen. Uh, then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. And furthermore, many witnessed Dorcas after she came to life. Verse 40 continues. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed. And turning the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand, lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And then finally, Luke believed it happened. He records it as fact. But for some reason, some modern evangelicals have a hard time believing the numerous reports of resurrections in our own day. In fact, I'm sure that I will lose some credibility in the eyes of some people when I see there is no reason to believe that God could not bring a person back to life today. If you examine these modern reports of resurrections, it is true. Some cannot be verified. And so, I just leave it on the back burner. I don't know if it happened or didn't happen. But there are some of these that meet all of the tests that we have talked about earlier concerning miracles. They've passed all of them. There are sworn affidavits by doctors and morgues and witnesses, and yet people will still insist it's either a hoax or the person hadn't died in the first place. It's impossible for a person to come back to life. And this despite the fact that in some of those cases where there has been verifiability, these people were already decomposing, stinking. Okay? All I can say to such skeptics is that Augustine started out as a major skeptic and when reports of miracles began coming in during a time of revival, they began coming in left and right, he went out to examine, maybe to shut things down, and he carefully investigated, became convinced, recorded the miracles, including six people raised from the dead. He began seeing miracles happening in his own ministry and numerous other church fathers have said the same. Irenaeus in 189 A.D. claimed that numerous people have been raised from the dead since the time of the apostles. He didn't worry about the fact that people would think he was a nutcase. Uh, Athanasius, 354 A.D., speaks of ministers who performed absolutely amazing miracles. All of these respected ministers. Hilary, who died in 368, is said to have raised someone from the dead. Ambrose in 388 speaks of a blind man who received sight. St. Patrick of Ireland records over 40 resurrections that happened in his ministry. He was born around 387, died in 461. I mean, these are people that you look back and you say, these were respected theologians, even by Reformed people, So respected theologians. And yet these pastors from earlier ages would agree with my assertion that there is no reason we should expect anything to stop in terms of the miraculous that God has not explicitly said would stop. To once again quote Geisler, if there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. The only way to show that miracles are impossible is to disprove the existence of God. And so I would encourage you to be believers in miracles. Uh, Don't be naturalistic skeptics. Don't be naive. Use the tests of Scripture. Now let me quickly end with six more lessons that we can learn from this passage. First of all, Peter was very active and involved in ministry. I think this is a lesson not just for ministers but for all of us. He didn't hold himself up in a study. He was involved with people. He fellowshiped with people. He interacted and ministered one-on-one. Second, Peter always sought to exalt Christ in his life. Quite the opposite of Simon Magus who was self-exalting. And the church hugely benefited from his selfless character. Third, Peter was available to be used and to be flexible in his schedule. I'm sure he had a pretty busy schedule. And yet he was available when God said, stop what you're doing and go over here for him to adjust his schedule. His schedule had not become so important that it made him ignore the needs of people. Okay? He was available. He was flexible. Fourth, Peter was prayerful. He had no illusions about where power came from. It came from above and he constantly went to the Lord. He was prayerful. Fifth, Peter was fruitful. Many people came to Christ in this section, and that should be our desire as well. Lord, make us fruitful. Um, Make the sheep, reproduce sheep, help us to be fruitful. And then finally, Peter was not prejudiced against those who were different. In fact, it appears in verse 43, he went out of his way to stay with a person who was quite low in the social list. One person commented that sacred cows hinder ministry and that we should be in the business of turning sacred cows into hamburger. And that's what Peter was doing here, okay? May we be a people who glory in God's power, who walk in humility and don't fall into the ditch of naturalism on one side or fall into the ditch of naivete and gullibility on the other side, but glory in the Scriptures and what God has given. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for your grace and your power that is at work in us, feeble creatures. We do not deserve it. And yet we have seen your miraculous power at work and we praise you and we bless you. I pray, Father, that we would not have in our minds any idea that these things are our right, that we can demand them or insist upon them. But, Father, when you sovereignly bring them, may we not discredit you by doubting your power or by Uh, saying that such things are impossible. We love you. We bless you. And it is our desire, uh, whether with or without uh, miracles, to advance the cause of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.